One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Texans at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, October 8th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 41 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. The Falcons run man coverage at a top 10 rate in the league and just had A.J. Terrell line up opposite Calvin Ridley on 79% of snaps last week. Nico Collins ranks third in fantasy points per route run, per PFF 1.13, and carries the top overall receiving grade against man coverage, again, per PFF. Tank Dell ranks sixth in fantasy points per route run against man coverage, per PFF. C.J. Stroud has averaged more than 300 passing yards per game and has thrown six touchdowns this season, five of which have gone to Collins or Dell. The Texans face the third-highest neutral rush rate against this season, and the Falcons sport the league's highest rush rate over expectation, RROE. After starting the season in a near-even timeshare with Tyler Algier, Bijan Robinson has garnered snap rates of 72, 81, and 76% over the previous three games, handling 62.8% of the team's running back opportunities during that time frame. How Houston will try to win. The Texans have been one of the more pleasant surprise offenses in the league through the first month of play. I would attribute most of that success to offensive coordinator Bobby Slowick and C.J. Stroud, each of whom have been a breath of fresh air. Slowick hails from the Kyle Shanahan coaching tree after serving under the San Francisco head coach for six seasons prior to his hiring in Houston. Now consider the fact that this team has scored 24 points per game through four weeks, which is good for 15th, against the backdrop of it missing four of its starting offensive linemen and with a rookie quarterback, and it seems much more impressive. The Texans have played at pace, 5th ranked 27.1 seconds per play, with a pass-balanced attack, 18th ranked pass rate over expectation, and have rattled off consecutive wins over the Jaguars and Steelers, while scoring 67 points during that run. Their 38 pass attempts per game ranks 5th in the league, which makes sense considering the relative inefficiencies of their run game thus far. Damian Pierce leads a backfield that has transitioned to more of a 1-2 punch after starting the season as a three-headed monster during the team's first two games. Pierce has accounted for 66.4% of the team's available backfield opportunities, but has struggled to a 2.8 true yards per carry and just 3.5 yards per touch, which again makes sense considering the injuries to the team's offensive line. Left tackle Laramie Tunsil, right guard Shaq Mason, and left guard Josh Jones all got in a limited session on Wednesday after either missing extended time or getting banged up in week four. The transition to a dual-back backfield between Pierce and change-of-pace back Devin Singletary has come at the expense of journeyman Mike Boone, the latter of whom played just eight total offensive snaps in the two games since returning from an injury that forced him to miss the team's week two loss to the Colts. Slowick stated that the team didn't intend to be so pass-heavy during the first two games of the season, which he deemed more necessity than planned due to the ineffective rushing attack and injuries up front. During their two-game win streak, Stroud has attempted 60 passes, compared to 55 team running back carries, which backs up the assertion of a more pass-balanced approach that was brought up before. The matchup on the ground is not ideal against a Falcons team holding opposing backfields to just 3.9 yards per attempt, and the efficiency of the run game has been lacking, but Slowick should continue to strive for balance in neutral to positive game environments. Finally, the Texans see the highest rate of eight or more defenders in the box on running back carries this season. The true breakout from this team has come through the air, with Stroud and Slowick combining to look more than capable in their first taste of NFL action. 
The layered route concepts introduced by Slowick and the spread nature of the offense have led to the second highest cushion amongst the four primary pass catchers, behind only the Washington Commanders. As in, Slowick is actively designing an offense to get his playmakers the ball in space. Collins and Dell are in the midst of true breakout seasons, with Collins holding elite underlying metrics in Yak, 195, ranked first, yards per reception, 19.5, ranked third, yards per route run, 3.57, ranked 4th, juke rate 40.9%, first, and a solid 12 A dot, and Dell carrying 2.32 YPRR, 18th, 16.7 YPR, 15th, and the solid 12.3 A dot, 33rd. Stroud currently ranks 12th in intended air yards per pass attempt, 9th in air yards per completion, 4th in total pass yards, and 6th in total intended air yards, through 4 games. The offense began the season operating from an 11 personnel base, with tight end Dalton Schultz a near every down tight end, but has since transitioned to extreme levels of 12 personnel usage during the previous two weeks. The matchup through the air is a difficult one against a Falcons defense built on versatility. Last week, Terrell shadowed Ridley on 79% of the offensive snaps, which allowed the Atlanta defense to play more man coverage than we've seen to this point in the season. Even so, the Falcons carry top 10 rates of man coverage into Week 5. Collins currently ranks third in fantasy points per route run per PFF at 1.13 and carries the top overall receiving grade against man coverage per PFF, while Dell ranks sixth in fantasy points per route run against man coverage per PFF. Finally, Stroud has thrown six touchdowns this season, five of which have gone to either Collins or Dell. How Atlanta will try to win. The Falcons have run a moderately paced offense, 11th ranked 28 seconds per play, with extreme rush rates highest RROE in the league, through the first month of play, highlighting a continued emphasis on the ground game under head coach Arthur Smith. Now, consider that second-year quarterback Desmond Ritter is challenging Zach Wilson for the title of league's most incompetent quarterback, and it begins to make sense why Smith is so steadfast in his offensive approach. Ritter currently sports the league's 32nd-ranked catchable pass rate, 68.1%, 27th-ranked clean pocket completion rate, 64.5%, and 31st-ranked play-action completion rate, 46.9%. He leads the league with 14 danger plays and ranks second in interceptable passes. Yeah, not good, Bob. After starting the season in a near-even timeshare, Robinson has garnered snap rates of 72%, 81%, and 76% over the previous three games, handling 62.8% of the team's running back opportunities during that span. He has scored 20 or more DK points in three of four contests to start his rookie season, all while scoring just one touchdown. His 7.5% breakaway run rate ranks eighth in the league. He has run the second most routes of all running backs, 104. His true yards per carry ranks sixth at 5.6. His yards per touch ranks third at 6.3. And the Falcons' offensive line currently ranks sixth in run blocking grade. There's really no better way to put it than by saying Robinson is a true superstar in the making. At some point in the season, Robinson is going to score multiple touchdowns. When that happens, a true put-the-slate-out-of-reach type score is squarely in play on his current workload, and that workload still has room to grow based on his modest 58.6% year-to-date opportunity share. Finally, the Texans face the third-highest neutral rush rate against this season, and the Falcons sport the league's highest RROE. Algiers should continue in the change of pace and short yardage role, the latter of which is likeliest to rear its ugly head at the goal line. I expect the Falcons to utilize increased rates of heavy packages against the Texans considering their previous tendencies, which should include 30% or more of the offensive snaps fed to fullback Kevin Smith 
and a head-scratching snap dispersal amongst the tight ends. Johnny Smith has played nearly the same amount of snaps as Kyle Pitts, 161 to 178, which should not happen, but it is. That should leave just Drake London and Mac Hollins as the near-every-down pass catchers on an offense that has fed 19.1% of its targets to Robinson, five or six targets in every game this season. In its current state, the only pass catcher this offense can support outside of Robinson is alpha wide receiver Drake London, and even then, Ritter has just three passing scores through four games. This offense truly is Robinson or bust in its current form. Likeliest Game Flow It is exceedingly likely the Falcons are allowed to control the game on the ground against a Houston defense seeing the third highest rate of neutral rush attempts against this season, 57%. That pairs well with how we expect the Falcons to approach this spot, considering their league-leading RROE and robust 28.3 rush attempts per game. That should force or allow the Texans to tilt their attack towards the air as the game progresses, forming a likeliest game scenario where both teams are able to attack in their most efficient manner. That also opens up significant upside from each team, considering the current efficiency metrics from the Falcons' Robinson and the Texans' Collins and Dell, the latter two of whom have excelled against man coverage this season, and the former of whom is likely the best pure runner remaining in the game after the loss of Nick Chubb for the season. If nothing else, this spot opens up some interesting mini-correlations and or one-off potential. Panthers at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, October 8th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 44. Game Overview by Hilo. Amon Ross St. Brown did not practice on Wednesday or Thursday while dealing with an abdomen injury. Jamison Williams makes his season debut after seeing his six-game suspension reduced to four games. His 4-3-9 speed and downfield acumen bring one of the missing pieces to this Lions offense. David Montgomery has played two games where he wasn't injured during or missed entirely. In those games, he has seen 53 carries and two targets. Montgomery has also scored five touchdowns in what amounts to two and a half games worth of offensive snaps. The rushing matchup for Detroit yields the week's third best net adjusted line yards metric in one of the biggest mismatches of the week. How Carolina will try to win. The Panthers rank near the middle of the pack in pace, 19th ranked 28.8 seconds per play, and pass rate over expectation, 21st, averaging a robust 67.8 offensive plays per game, 24 rush attempts per game, and an extreme 40.3 pass attempts per game. A large reason for those gaudy pass numbers has been the routine negative game environments this team has found themselves in during the first four weeks of play, with their negative 35-point differential ranking 8th worst in the league. Head coach Frank Reich's offense has been fairly mundane, playing near-league average rates of 11 and 12 personnel with route concepts that adhere to the standard route tree. In other words, we haven't seen much in the way of forward-leaning principles in this offense up to this point in the season, which is likely a combination of the youth present and Reich's largely conservative approach. Miles Sanders has started all four games at running back for the Panthers, despite being questionable heading into Week 4. His 67% opportunity share ranks 15th in the league, but his paltry 2.9 true yards per carry ranks 55th, and the Panthers have struggled mightily in run-blocking metrics. And that isn't even a product of teams stacking the box against Carolina, as Sanders averages just 6.3 defenders in the box on his carries this season, which is one of the lowest stacked box rates in the league. He has seen a light front at the 8th highest rate this year. In other words, the Carolina offensive line can't block well in the run game, and Sanders' low juke rate, 41st, and minuscule breakaway run rate, 38th ranked 1.8%, are not providing enough on his own. Chuba Hubbard has played a change-of-pace-plus role for the Panthers this season with 116 total snaps, 
checking in amongst the league leaders for backup running backs. The matchup on the ground is about as gross as they come, with Detroit ranking second in yards allowed per carry this year. Things don't get much rosier through the air. Rookie quarterback Bryce Young holds the lowest completed air yards per completion in the league this season at 2.9 yards. This indicates an offense that has both struggled to attack downfield and to find success and efficiency when they do pass. His 6.4 intended air yards per pass attempt ranks 30th. He is tied for 8th most sacks taken, and he has been pressured at the 8th highest rate this year. Those individual metrics now make sense when taken in context with the team dynamics. Veterans Adam Thielen and DJ Chark operate as the near-every-down pass catchers for this offense, with Terrace Marshall and LaVisca Chenault combining for the remainder of the wide receiver snaps. The team utilizes a messy three-headed timeshare at tight end with near-league average 12 personnel rates, typically leaving no more than 60% of the offensive snaps to any one of Hayden Hurst, Tommy Tremble, and Ian Thomas. How Detroit Will Try to Win the Lions maintain a relatively modest-paced offense, 28th-ranked, 29.7 seconds per play, with elevated rush rates, 3rd-ranked rush rate over expectation, 4th-ranked rush attempts per game at 33.8, and a modest 32.8 pass attempts per game, good for 22nd, in 2023, but have seen their downfield work improve for the third consecutive season. Quarterback Jared Goff's 7.5 intended air yards per pass attempt continues to improve with each passing season in Detroit jumping from 6.4 in 2021, which ranked 31st, to 7.0 in 2022, which was good for 24th. Furthermore, his 7.1 completed air yards per completion ranks 5th in the league this season. On the other side of the ball, the major steps forward from this team reside with a defense now ranked in the top 6 in the league in DVOA against both the pass and the rush, holding their opposition to just 3.0 yards per carry, 2nd, and 5.3 net yards per pass attempt, 6th. That has allowed the Lions to control game environments and grind out victories through methodical and clock-killing drives. The matchup on the ground is one of the better ones of the week, yielding the third-best net-adjusted line yards metric on the back of one of the bigger mismatches in the trenches. PFF grades the mismatch with a 24% expected increase to rushing production. In the two games played without either suffering an injury mid-game or missing entirely, David Montgomery has played snap rates of 79 and 71%, and handled a combined 53 carries and two targets. There's also the added benefit of a 27-point Vegas implied team total, tied for third most on the slate, and large spread, 10 points, which should provide the opportunity for Montgomery to see another 25-plus carries here, considering team tendencies and expected game environment. The poor per-touch efficiency, 3.7 true yards per carry, and relative zero in the passing game, 3.2% target share, make Montgomery purely a volume play that requires touchdowns in order to return GPP-worthy value, but that is squarely on the table in this spot considering a robust red zone roll, 18 red zone touches in about two and a half games worth of snaps. He has also scored five touchdowns in those two and a half games worth of snaps. Montgomery will continue to be backed up by rookie Jameer Gibbs in a strict change of pace roll, with snap rates of 27 and 37% in Montgomery's two fully healthy games. The matchup through the air against Carolina should serve to suppress the progress shown by this pass offense slightly, considering they have held opponents to a defensive ADOT of 7.4, ranked 12th, and generate pressure at a solid 24.4% rate, 26% blitz rate. That said, electric downfield threat Jamison Williams makes his season debut after serving a four-game suspension, reduced from six games, which should serve to open up throwing lanes underneath in addition to providing the occasional deep shot downfield. Health permitting, he suffered a hamstring injury in preseason, I would expect him to immediately jump into the third highest snap rate behind St. Brown and Josh Reynolds, 
rendering Marvin Jones relatively obsolete and relegating Khalif Raymond back to primarily serving as the team's kick returner. Jones already saw his lowest snap rate of the season in Week 4 and appears to have been phased out of the offense after numerous early season drops and mental errors. St. Brown's health is obviously worth monitoring here. He has not practiced as of Thursday with a core injury. Should St. Brown miss, I would expect Reynolds and Raymond to combine for the vacated slot role with a likely increase to 12 personnel rates through rookie tight end Sam Laporta and Brock Wright. Wright played a season-high 59% of the team's offensive snaps in Week 4 and stands to see his role increase the most in the absence of St. Brown. Likeliest Game Flow This game sets up well for how the Lions want to control games. Heavy emphasis on the ground game with intermediate to deep shots through the air mixed in. While they have primarily tried to do that with an underperforming defense over the previous two seasons, this iteration of the Lions' defense is worthy of that cause, ranking top six in DVOA against both the rush and the pass. They've also generated an elite 27.7% pressure rate behind a minuscule 17.5% blitz rate, which is the second largest blitz to pressure ratio in the league behind only the Bills this season. That should allow the Lions to control the trenches on both sides on their way to another dominant on-paper showing. Furthermore, the presence of Jamison Williams working downfield should improve an already solid drive success rate by loosening up the number of defenders over the middle of the field and allowing the Lions to hold on to the football longer. The Panthers don't have the offensive personnel, quarterback, or scheme to play catch-up effectively in that environment, but should provide paths to elite rushing volume for the Lions. Titans at Colts, kickoff Sunday, October 8th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 43. Game Overview by Hilo. After missing the team's Week 4 contest with a knee injury, wide receiver Traylon Burks has yet to practice this week as of Thursday. Sound the alarm, Jonathan Taylor was a full participant in each practice period this week as of Thursday. It appears likely that he will make his season debut against the Titans after calling his recent contract dispute with the team an off-season issue. Quiddy Pay, Concussion, and Shaquille Leonard, Groin, have yet to practice this week for the Colts, two staples of their defense. Tennessee's offensive line is blocking to just 1.06 yards before contact per rush, which ranks second worst in the league this year, behind only Carolina. Colts rookie quarterback Anthony Richardson is one of the most dynamic athletes in today's game, and he brings weekly upside with both his arm and legs. The Colts have played at the fastest pace in the league through the first month of play. How Tennessee will try to win. Run the damn ball and make it so the other team can't run the damn ball. That's how. Joking aside, that has been the formula for this Titans team for the previous four seasons, and there are no signs of that stopping anytime soon, at least for as long as head coach Mike Vrabel remains in town. The biggest problem for this Titans team this season has been their offensive line, a unit that is blocking to just 1.06 yards before contact and is allowing pressure at a 31% clip both of which rank 31st in the league. It's hard, even for King Henry, to establish any semblance of stability when your offensive line is struggling to that extent. Tennessee runs the slowest offense in the league at 32.6 seconds per play and holds the league's fourth highest rush rate over expectation, both of which were to be assured coming into the season. Derrick Henry has seen some of his empty snaps move to rookie Tajay Spears this season, but he still carries a borderline elite 70.4% opportunity share ranked 13th, and has seen the second most carries of all backs this year. His true yards per carry value is all the way down at 3.7, which is good for 39th, and highlights the struggles of the Tennessee offensive line up to this point in the season. He has also seen a laughably high 7.1 average defenders in the box, due primarily to the team tipping their hand when he is on the field, 
His high snap-to-touch ratio makes it evident what the team is doing when he's on the field, and his stacked front carry rate is the fourth highest in the league. Even so, Henry always has a path to 30 or more running back opportunities in the right environment, which doesn't necessarily speak to the matchup as much as a game environment that remains competitive throughout. The matchup on the ground is neutral to negative against a Colts defense seating just 3.8 yards per carry this year. That said, they have allowed six rushing scores through four games, which is tied for the second most on the season. Spears should continue serving as the primary change of pace back, but he holds a low 29.6% opportunity share despite a solid 50.2% snap rate and holds a modest 0.74 fantasy points per opportunity, the last of which ranks 36th in the league. Alpha wide receiver DeAndre Hopkins came into the team's Week 4 contest with a questionable tag due to a lingering ankle issue, which could help explain his diminutive for him 53% snap rate in that contest. Traylon Burks has yet to practice this week, as of Thursday, after missing Week 4's contest and appears unlikely to play again in Week 5. That should leave Nick Westbrook-Akine and Chris Moore in elevated roles against the Colts, two players that are borderline NFL talents. Tight end Chig Okonkwo also saw his lowest snap rate of the season in Week 4 at 65%, likely due to the team wanting to get better run-blocking tight ends on the field, Trayvon Wesco, Josh Wiley, and even Kevin Rader. Now take all of that on the backdrop of just 27.3 pass attempts per game, and we're left with little to no upside from any member of this pass offense on a weekly basis. How Indianapolis will try to win. Shane Steichen and the Colts are running an interesting offense this season. They have played at the league's fastest pace, 25.3 seconds per play, but hold the sixth highest rush rate over expectation. Quarterback Anthony Richardson has averaged just under 10 carries per four quarters of play and has four rushing scores in just under 10 quarters of play, which is a pace of about 1.6 rushing scores per four quarters. The expected return of Jonathan Taylor should also be a significant boost to the efficiency of the offense, which is rather large news considering the short area emphasis of the offense in its current state. That emphasis on the short areas of the field through the air has meant this offense has been forced to march the field and string together drives. And while that can change moving forward, we don't know if Steichen has shortened the field for his rookie signal caller in an attempt to simplify things for him, there is no way of knowing if or when that change will come to pass. As things currently stand, we should treat the Colts as an offense designed to put together drives and control the ball. The recent happenings surrounding the Jonathan Taylor saga seem to indicate a few things. One, the offseason issues involving Taylor and owner Jim Ursay are either in the past or Taylor is playing the bigger man. Two, Taylor's injured ankle was truly still an issue. And three, Taylor should be considered healthy moving forward. If all those assumptions are correct, Jonathan Taylor should return to one of the more robust roles in the league at the running back position, and that could happen as early as this week. In 2022, Taylor held top 12 marks in opportunity share, snap rate, and expected fantasy points per game. Or, Taylor is still not fully healthy and Zach Moss eats into his workload here. Either way, the Colts have blocked the ninth most yards before contact this season, 1.49, but face off against a Titans defense allowing the fewest yards per carry through the first month of play, a laughably low 2.9. The pass offense has been a case of Michael Pittman and then everyone else through four weeks. With Pittman posting an elite 28.7% target market share, the eighth most targets, and the sixth most total routes run. Alec Pierce is the only other pass catcher in a near every down roll, but has been victim to the short area nature of the offense through four weeks. Again, this emphasis can change without notice, but we have no idea when or if that will happen. Rookie wide receiver Josh Downs plays primarily from the slot, meaning his snap rate is subject to the team's heavy personnel rates. 
So far, that has yielded between 73% and 80% of the team's offensive snaps. He also holds a low ADOT 6.3, making upside a difficult bet in a standard week. Kylan Granson, Mo Cox, and Drew Ogletree are splitting snaps at tight end for an offense running 12 personnel about 20% of the time, leaving no tight end above 60% snap rate range on a weekly basis. The matchup against the Titans is a good one, as Tennessee has continued to face some of the highest neutral pass rates against due to their emphasis on stopping the run. In this offense's current state, Pittman is the only pass catcher of note, and even then, his paths to a true GPP-worthy score at his salary are slim. Likeliest Game Flow The moderate game total and low spread hint at a game environment that is played close throughout, and I largely agree with that assertion. That should allow the opportunity for Derrick Henry to remain involved throughout, which boosts his volume expectation and lowers the overall upside from this game environment, considering the Titan tendencies to run a slow offense. Now consider the Colts' propensity to look to march the field in their own offensive approach, and we're left with very few paths to true eruption from this game environment. That said, Derrick Henry and Michael Pittman should have volume on their side, making each player capable of putting up a solid score in this spot. The chances of either putting up a true had-to-have-it score is relatively small, but both remain in the discussion for potential GPP consideration early in the week. That brings us to Indianapolis quarterback Anthony Richardson, who has the athleticism, role, and upside to return top quarterback numbers anytime he steps on the field. That is no different in this spot. The chances of any player outside of those three providing GPP utility in this spot is rather thin, and the chances of this game environment taking off are even thinner. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Giants at Dolphins. Kickoff Sunday, October 8th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 48.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Wing Martindale's Giants defense has been in man coverage at the highest rate in the league through the first month of play, 45.1%. They rank second in blitz rate, 49.6%, and are forcing the third shallowest defensive ADOT, 6.7. Even with the continued utilization of heavy blitz rates, the Giants rank 23rd in pressure rate, have just four sacks in as many weeks, and have missed the second most tackles, 40. Miami leads the league in explosive rush rate, and the Giants have given up the fifth highest rate of explosive rush plays. I'm writing this before the teams release their first injury reports of the week, but the big name to keep an eye on is Giants running back Saquon Barkley. He went into the team's week four Monday night football game doubtful and was ultimately held out. I honestly have no clue what to expect with the team on a short week, and they are likely to only run a walkthrough practice on Wednesday considering their late game in week four, so monitor the situation carefully this week. Saquon's presence would be a big boost to the game environment here. The Dolphins lead the league in points per game at a whopping 37.5. Even if we remove their 70-point outburst against the Broncos, this offense is averaging 26.67 points per game in their other three games this season, which came against the Chargers, Patriots, and Bills. That would still rank 8th in the league. This offense can put up points with the best of them. Miami averages a ridiculous 511 yards of offense per game this season, which is 113 per game more than the second-place 49ers. The Giants averaged the second-fewest yards per game this year at just 252. Yep, you heard that right. The Dolphins average more than double the yards per game than the Giants do. How New York will try to win. Man, I honestly have no clue how the Giants are going to try and win this game. 
The Dolphins have faced some of the lowest rates of man coverage over the previous two seasons because their personnel and scheme can absolutely decimate man coverage. At the same time, Wink Martindale has a long history of running some of the highest rates of man coverage in the league behind some of the highest blitz rates in the league. As such, I expect Wink to continue to operate his defense within his wheelhouse, which spells trouble against this particular opponent. On offense, we have a Giants team that has scored just four offensive touchdowns this season, three of which came in the second half of their Week 2 game against the Cardinals. Daniel Jones has accounted for three of those scores, with two passing and one rushing. Finally, the Giants averaged just 252 yards of offense per game this season, which is less than half that of the Dolphins. And it's not like this offense has only struggled against man-heavy or zone-heavy teams. They got shut out against the defense playing the highest rates of man coverage in Week 1, the Cowboys, and struggled mightily against the zone-heavy 49ers and Seahawks. This particular matchup aligns a lot with their matchup from Week 4 against the Seahawks, who lead the league in zone coverage rates. The Dolphins blitz a moderate 29.1% and are generating pressure at a solid 25.8% clip, which is going to force Daniel Jones into quick and accurate reads, an area of his game he has yet to fully master, and that's putting it lightly. There is some uncertainty surrounding the run game this week due to Saquon Barkley's availability. The Giants are clearly a better team with Barkley on the field, a back that has managed a robust 85.1% opportunity share, good for second, on the backs of an 83.5% snap rate, which ranks third, when healthy. His elite 88.1% route participation rate highlights just how much he means to this offense. The Dolphins are allowing 4.3 yards per carry and six rushing scores this season, making the matchup non-prohibitive. Saquon is also about as game script proof as they come considering his robust pass game involvement, making him an interesting yet speculative option should he play. Should Barkley miss, expect Matt Breida to once again serve as the lead back for an offense that has managed just 26 running back carries during the last two weeks without Barkley. Lord have mercy on this pass offense in its current state, fresh off allowing 10 sacks to a Seahawks defense that managed just 6 sacks during their first three games. Wandale Robinson and rookie Jalen Hyatt surged in snap rate in week four, each playing more than 60% of the team's offensive snaps for the first time this season. Darius Slayton continues to run the most routes and holds the largest snap rate in this offense, but is utilized primarily as an empty route safety manipulator downfield. Isaiah Hodgins and Paris Campbell should round out the wide receiver core, but were both down below 37% snap rates a week ago. Off-season free agent addition Darren Waller has yet to be fully showcased in this offense, but provides a solid on-paper mismatch against the zone-heavy nature of the Miami defense. His utilization has been promising to this point in the season, carrying a solid 90% route participation rate, 7th, 26.2% air yards share, 2nd, and a 9.2 ADOT, 4th, through the season's first four weeks. At some point, things are going to trend upward for the Giants, and Waller is likely to be one of the primary points of emphasis. Finally, Robinson's laughable ADOT of 4.2 makes for a tough sell, while Hyatt maintains some level of intrigue with a more robust downfield role. 30.0 ADOT doesn't qualify on just three targets this season, but his 60% snap rate in week four hints at increased utilization at some point. How Miami will try to win. I'll preface this discussion with one stipulation. We don't have a ton of data this year for the Miami offense against man coverage because, well, teams are simply not playing man coverages at a high rate against this explosive offense. That said, we'll include data from the 2022 season as well to give us a more robust data set on which to base our analysis. 
Also, I don't think we should let the mad genius aspect of Mike McDaniel's play calling tendencies go unmentioned here, particularly considering this team just got blown out by their division rival on the road in week four. As we saw in week three against the Broncos, McDaniel and the Dolphins are going to continue playing until the final whistle, with each time they touch the football an opportunity to improve their offense. On the other side of the ball, Vic Fangio's too-high, heavy nickel and dime-based defensive scheme is more of a prevent unit, but one that has surrendered a robust 9.0 defensive ADOT, good for the fourth deepest, and one that has struggled to disrupt opposing drives even with a solid 25.8% pressure rate. A lot of those struggles on defense have come via a 46.15% third down conversion rate allowed, which ranks 25th in the league this season. The Dolphins lead the league in explosive play rate and explosive rush rate, and are facing a Giants defense allowing the fifth highest rate of explosive rushes against, primarily induced via their heavy blitz rates and heavy man coverage rates. We talked about this last season when discussing Wink's defensive philosophy. Heavy man coverage rates means a larger percentage of plays with more defenders with their backs turned to the play. Devon Achan had a relative takeover of the backfield in Week 4 against the Bills, finishing with a 60% snap rate. 42% carry share, a massive 68% route participation rate, and 15% target market share. While most will assume that hints at a changing of the guard moving forward, I think it's much more likely that those rates were heavily influenced by the negative game script in a game where the Dolphins went down big in the second half. Per Dwayne McFarland, Mostert saw 62% of the snaps, 43% of the carries, and a 39% target market share in the first half a week ago. In a game environment that the Dolphins should control throughout, I would think it is much more likely we see Mostert operate as the 1A, with Achan the 1B, with an additional opportunity to see increased involvement late in the game. One final note is that Salvan Ahmed was healthy in Week 4 after missing Week 3 and played only four offensive snaps a week ago, leaving this backfield more condensed than what we saw during the first two weeks of the season. There is upside for both primary backs in this spot. Since the start of the 2022 season, Tyreek Hill has seen man coverage on just 17.8% of his total routes run. Hill has seen a 32.8% targets per route run rate against primary man coverage during that time, which ranks 7th in the league of qualified pass catchers. Jalen Waddell is below Braxton Berrios in targets per route run rate against man coverage over the previous two seasons. Waddle's modest 18.3% targets per route run rate against man coverages during the previous two seasons ranks 98th of all wide receivers to play more than four games in that time period. To me, this isn't necessarily a shot at Waddle or his ability to win against man coverage. It's simply a nod to just how elite Hill is. In other words, Mike McDaniel and Tua Tagovailoa are very good at getting the ball to the best mismatch on the field. While Waddle is a legitimate weapon in this offense, he is more akin to the Shinkansen bullet train, whereas Hill has that full-on maglev technology. Sorry for the train analogy. Maglev technology, or magnetic levitation, means less friction, which means higher top speeds. The other interesting aspect of a matchup against a Giants defense that runs heavy rates of man coverage is the backfield. Both Devon Achan and Raheem Mostert are capable pass catchers, and could be schemed additional touches through the air to counter the heavy blitz rates from Wink. Any of those three with the ball in their hands in space against man coverage could result in significant chances for splash plays to develop from this offense in Week 5. Likeliest Game Flow It is likely we see the Dolphins completely control this game environment with their offense. It is also likely we see them continue to provide copious amounts of explosive plays considering the setup in this spot. The Miami backfield appears to be more concentrated than what we saw to begin the season, with Mostert and Achan clearly accounting for the vast majority of opportunities out of the backfield. 
Tyreek Hill has returned to elite numbers against man coverage since the start of the 2022 season, which is important in this spot as we expect Wink Martindale to continue with heavy blitz rates and heavy rates of man coverage behind it. In other words, Hill almost doubles the targets per route run rate of Jalen Waddell against man coverage over the previous two seasons. The biggest unknown surrounding this game environment is the health of Saquon Barkley, who missed the team's Monday night football game with his ankle injury. His presence would boost the overall game environment. That said, we have a somewhat robust sample of the Dolphins keeping their foot on the gas offensively against inferior opponents. As we touched on above, the Dolphins average more than double the yards per game on offense than the Giants do, which is highly likely to be a predictive metric in this spot. Saints at Patriots. Kickoff Sunday, October 8th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 39. Game Overview by Pappy. The best DFS plays from this game are the defenses. Derek Carr had an absurdly low 3.4 yards per attempt last week. Alvin Kamara had 33 yards on 13 catches last week. The Patriots' defense is missing several key starters. The Patriots' backfield is becoming a timeshare. Both offensive coordinators look lost. How New Orleans will try to win. The 2-2 Saints come into Week 5 off an embarrassing performance where they were soundly beaten 26-9 by division rival Tampa Bay. The Saints played their first three games within three points against the Titans, Panthers, and Packers, and they are better than the result they got Week 4. Once upon a time, I had an old high school football coach who anytime you were banged up would ask, you hurt or are you injured? Derek Carr lied when he answered hurt. He had a pathetic 3.4 yards per attempt, and it was clear to anyone watching that Carr was incapable of throwing the ball downfield. If it was obvious to onlookers, it was obvious to the Bucks, who simply squatted on the Saints' offense. It would make sense that Dennis Allen would regret the decision to start Carr given the outcome, and that he had a viable backup in Jameis Winston. However, as it stands, Carr is in line to get the start again this week. The Saints have played fast, pass-leaning football on offense, but that doesn't mean much if your QB can't throw the ball more than 10 yards. Pete Carmichael Jr. runs a vanilla offense, using play action and pre-stamp motion at the lowest rates in the league. Don't expect the scheme to adjust. The Saints' O-line isn't good, 23rd ranked by PFF, and it doesn't help matters that right guard Cesar Ruiz and his backup Andrus Pete both left last week's game with a concussion. The Patriots' defense is above average against the run, and it's unlikely the Saints will be able to get much going on the ground. The Patriots rely heavily on man coverage, which is vulnerable to big plays when defenders get beat deep, especially when star corner Christian Gonzalez is looking likely to miss the rest of the season. Without the threat of the long ball, it'll be a tough day for the Saints. Unless Carr's shoulder shows substantial progress, the Saints would be wise to start Winston. That probably won't be the decision in a league that values toughness as its top priority. With their run game likely to be ineffective, expect a similar approach to last week where the Saints played their typical quick, vanilla, pass-leaning style, but without the ability to throw downfield. How New England will try to win The 1-3 Patriots limp into Week 5 fresh off the largest loss of Bill Belichick's career, a 38-3 thumping at the hands of the Cowboys. Bill Belichick should retire. He was fortunate enough to draft the greatest QB of all time and play in an astonishingly weak division for two decades. He will go down in many people's minds as the greatest coach of all time, but the truth is, the difference between Belichick and Rex Ryan is Tom Brady. To be fair, where Belichick deserves more credit than he gets is as a GM. He realized long before the league that running backs don't matter and wide receivers only sort of matter. 
He spent draft picks on big men and defense while using free agency to aggressively target talented players with perceived attitude problems. He knew that they were competitive guys who were acting out on bad teams. Belichick consistently fixed behavior issues by winning. He got as much credit as Brady during their run, but the reality is that on game day, Bill was an above-average defensive coach and nothing more. Belichick isn't an offensive mind, which was covered up for most of his career by Josh McDaniels. Without him, it hasn't been pretty, and Bill O'Brien isn't the answer. The Patriots have been trying to play fast and lean towards the pass, but their talentless offense doesn't work as well without Brady and a stud O-line. Speaking of which, this is one of the Patriots' worst O-lines in recent history, 28th ranked by PFF, with only Trent Brown performing well among the five starters. The Patriots have long been adaptable, but against a good defense like the Saints, who don't present a clear weakness, they would lean into their strength. In Tom Brady's prime, that was passing, or recently it became running. But what is the Patriots' offensive strength now? Expect the Pats to try and come out with their typical of this season, up-tempo, pass-leaning offense, while hoping that their defense can keep them in the game against Derek Carr's pop-gun arm. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a small total, 40.5, which makes sense since it's a pairing of two above-average defenses against two below-average offenses. The Saints' offense looked totally helpless with a wounded car, and their team total would probably be lower if it wasn't for a litany of injuries on the Patriots' defense. The Patriots are no offensive juggernaut themselves, and the Saints' defense is solid across the board, which creates a setup where both teams are going to try and win this game on the wrong side of the ball for fantasy production. The health of Carr's arm is the only element that could pull this game out of a grinding field position battle, but even if he's healthy, he'll still be facing a well-schemed defense on the road. The most likely outcome is a boring game where both teams try to win by not making mistakes rather than by making plays. The Ravens at the Steelers kick off Sunday, October 8th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 38. Game Overview by Hilo Rashad Bateman returned to a full practice Wednesday while Odell Beckham Jr. remained a limited participant with his ankle injury. Steelers tight end Pat Fryermuth was labeled very doubtful for Sunday by head coach Mike Tomlin. Four Pittsburgh starting offensive linemen missed practice Wednesday. Dan Moore, Isaac Seumalo, James Daniels, and Chukwuma Okarafor. Kenny Pickett left the team's Week 4 loss to the Texans with a knee injury and was limited in practice to start the week. He anticipates playing in Week 5 with a knee brace. Deontay Johnson remains out of the Pittsburgh lineup for at least one more game. The Steelers have been in man coverage at a 25.9% clip this season, which ranks 12th in the league. Their 48.4% coverage grade when in man ranks 29th per PFF. Of Baltimore wide receivers, only Odell Beckham Jr., 44.4%, and Zay Flowers, 25.9%, carry target rates higher than 18% against man coverage. Mark Andrews and Zay Flowers set up well to exploit this matchup through the air, with expected volume as the biggest detractor. How Baltimore will try to win After ranking 6th in rush attempts per game in 2022 at 31.2 meters, Todd Monken's 2023 Ravens offense averages 34.8 rush attempts per game, behind only the Philadelphia Eagles, who also led the league in that category last year. 
And that's not a case of this offense is running more plays per game, so obviously they will average more rush attempts per game when compared to a season ago, as much as it is this offense is not operating with the spread nature we thought after Monken was hired to this point in the season. They are averaging 63.8 offensive plays run from scrimmage per game compared to 62.1 a season ago. Continue to play at a slow pace, 27th ranked 29.7 seconds per play compared to 26th ranked 30.2 a season ago. And continue to operate a run-balanced offense, league low 26.3 pass attempts per game. They rank near the middle of the pack in pass rate over expectation this year. So what has changed with Monken and Town? The most significant effective change in this offense this season is the reduction of 12 personnel rates, of which most of those snaps have now transitioned to 11 personnel. The Baltimore offense remains focused on 21 personnel, with fullback Patrick Ricard seeing between 26 and 44% snap rates in each of the team's four contests, with the low value in that range coming in their Week 3 overtime loss to the Colts. They have primarily been allowed to continue a relatively conservative offensive approach designed to march the field on the backs of a defense allowing just 14.5 points per game. Third, as evidenced by a low 6.8 IAYPA value from quarterback Lamar Jackson, 26th in the league. Through the continuation of mounting injuries in Baltimore, the backfield now runs through veteran Gus Edwards, who is backed up by change of pace and clear passing down back Justice Hill and veteran journeyman Melvin Gordon. In the team's Week 4 game that they controlled throughout, Edwards saw a massive 69% snap rate and 69.2% of the team's backfield opportunities. I would expect that stranglehold on backfield opportunities to continue forward in game environments that the Ravens can control which this game sets up well for considering an opponent allowing a robust 4.7 yards per carry to opposing backs this season, fourth worst. Finally, quarterback Lamar Jackson averaged 10.25 carries per game during the first four weeks of the season, with four rushing scores over his previous two games. Whether through continued problems with the Liz Frank injury sustained in the 2022 season or through schematic design, Rashad Bateman has yet to play more than 69% of the team's offensive snaps in a game this season, missed week three with a hamstring injury. Combined with the absence of Odell Beckham Jr., that has left just rookie wide receiver Zay Flowers as the only near every down pass catcher for the Ravens to start the season as tight end Mark Andrews continues to see his playing time subsidized by the presence of Isaiah Likely. Andrews has had snap rates of 79%, 82%, and 69%. With Bateman Likely back, that should leave him and Nelson Aguilar to around 70% of the team's offensive snaps, with Devin DuVernay and Laquan Treadwell on hand to soak up any snaps remaining, likely influenced the most by OBJ's ability to return to game action. Pittsburgh has played man coverage at the league's 12th highest rate thus far, and only OBJ, 44.4%, and Flowers, 25.9%, have a target rate higher than 18% against man coverage this season for Baltimore wide receivers. That sets up well for Andrews to see significant work here. How Pittsburgh will try to win A clip came out of the Steelers entering the locker room through the tunnel after their Week 3 win over the Raiders. It just surfaced on Thursday of this week. In that clip, Matt Canada is hugging it out with head coach Mike Tomlin. Canada then says, nice win, to which kicker Chris Boswell, trailing the two by a few paces, remarks, it wasn't because of you. That jumped out to me as a statement of the team's feelings towards Canada, the offensive coordinator, 
People around the fantasy industry, myself included, have been saying this for years. But Matt Canada's mundane and straightforward offense is not doing much to exploit recent defensive tendencies from around the league. Instead, calling an extremely vanilla offense that struggles to attack downfield or string together drives. If the Steelers are winning, it is likely because their defense is winning the game. That's a critical discussion to have in this spot, considering the propensity of the Ravens to completely control the game environment every week. As this game progresses, that should lead to increased opportunities for mistakes from the Steelers, who essentially don't alter their offensive design relative to their game environment. The run game is a mess, with Steelers' backs combining to average just 3.6 yards per carry this season, 25th. On top of that, the team is now dealing with numerous injuries along their offensive line, with four of the five starters, all but center Mason Cole, on the injury report Wednesday as DNPs. The Ravens are one of the more difficult matchups to attack on the ground, seeding just 3.8 yards per carry this season, and are the only team in the league yet to allow a rushing score through four games. The snap rate split between Najee Harris and Jalen Warren almost doesn't matter in this spot but the two have been on a near-even split during the previous three games. No thank you. Topped with stay away. Even through routinely negative game environments, the Steelers average just 33 pass attempts per game this season, 33.6 in 2022. Quarterback Kenny Pickett averages just 6.9 IAYPA, 29th, and 2.7 completed air yards per pass attempt, 32nd, ahead of only Bryce Young and Joe Burrow. Huh, yeah. The only relative positive is a 6.0 yak completion value, ranking 5th in the league. The Ravens' defense has forced an extremely shallow dot of 7.0 and ranks in the top half of the league in yak allowed. In other words, things are not looking good for the Steelers, considering Pat Fryermoose likely absence, Deontay Johnson's relative inabilities to attack downfield, and the four injuries along the offensive line. Most interestingly, rookie wide receiver Calvin Austin worked his way up to a 90% snap rate in Week 4, and is the team's only true downfield threat. Even so, poor efficiency from Kenny Pickett, paired with what is likely to be increased pressure, offensive line injuries and 31.4% blitz rate from Baltimore, and poor mobility bone bruise to the knee, and likely playing with a knee brace, are unlikely to allow those downfield routes to develop in this spot. George Pickens has seen double-digit looks just once this season, and three of those games came without Deontay Johnson in the lineup, meaning he is doubtful to provide a GPP-worthy score in this spot. Likeliest Game Flow Considering the injuries to the Pittsburgh offensive line, the relative inability of the Steelers to attack downfield, the injury to starting tight end Pat Fryermuth, the absence of Deontay Johnson, and the fact the Steelers continue to struggle to sustain drives, and the score suppression tendencies of the Baltimore defense, it is likely the Ravens are able to control this game environment via their preferred methods. That should continue to include elevated rush rates and a slow pace of play, sapping a large portion of the upside from this game environment. The Steelers have vastly underperformed on defense to this point in the season, making the only upside bets found via the members of the Ravens that we can confidently project volume to flow through. That leaves just Lamar Jackson, Mark Andrews, and potentially Zay Flowers as the relevant fantasy pieces from this one. The Bengals at the Cardinals Kickoff Sunday, October 8th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 44.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson
Both of these teams have had surprising performances to start the season, with the Bengals' offense failing to meet expectations and the Cardinals being impressively competitive through four weeks. Joe Burrow's injured calf has crippled his mobility and made the Bengals' passing offense a shell of the unit we are used to seeing. Arizona has a very conservative approach on both sides of the ball that has helped them overcome some personnel deficiencies. The Cardinals' offense is one of only a couple of teams to rank top 10 in the NFL in DVOA via both the run and the pass. They also profile very similarly to the Titans' offense, who just played their best game of the season against this Bengals' defense. Cincinnati has lost their two road games this season by a combined total of 51-6. to How Cincinnati will try to win. The Bengals were the Cinderella darlings of the NFL two years ago, and followed that magical Super Bowl run with a return to the AFC Championship game last season. Much of that success was thanks to the elite offensive performance of Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, and company. This year, however, the Bengals rank dead last in the NFL in yards per play, and their passing offense ranks 28th in DVOA and 30th in yards per pass attempt. The main issue appears to be the limited mobility of Joe Burrow due to his strained calf that he suffered in training camp. The Bengals are effectively forced to play out of the shotgun formation on every snap, and defenses are able to pin their ears back and bring pressure to a stationary target. The added issue for the Bengals is their running game has always been decent, but never overly efficient, so it's not like they can just turn into a ground-and-pound team overnight and expect much success. Everyone is waiting for things to turn around, but that may be tough until Burrow's calf heals, if it does this season, and T. Higgins is also dealing with a rib injury that has held him out of practice this week. The Bengals' offense ranks fourth in the NFL in pass rate over expectation and plays at a moderate pace. This week, against a Cardinals defense that blitzes at the fourth lowest rate in the NFL and creates pressure at the fifth lowest rate in the league, the Bengals' offense may actually have a chance to get back on track. T. Higgins has a rib injury that left his status in doubt and he seems unlikely to play. This will leave Jamar Chase and Joe Mixon as the clear focal points of the offense. Two weeks ago against the Rams on Monday Night Football, the Bengals started using Jamar Chase more creatively and moved him around the formation. Over the last two games, Chase has 24 targets and it seems likely he will continue to be targeted at a very high rate, especially if Higgins does indeed miss this game. The Cardinals play zone coverage at the 8th highest rate in the league as their scheme is a conservative one predicated on shell coverages that prevent explosive plays and force their opponents to methodically move the ball down the field. The starting cornerbacks for Arizona rank 60th and 63rd in the league in PFF coverage grade out of 72 qualifying players, meaning that when the Cardinals do play manned coverage, Chase is going to have a terrific matchup. Chase's targets will likely be of the shorter variety against zone coverages with some calculated downfield shots on the rare times that Arizona shows man coverage. The Browns, Ravens, and Titans defenses gave the Bengals a ton of trouble thanks to all the pressure they were able to create. This matchup against Arizona provides a bit of a reprieve for Burrow and a chance for him to get back on track with Chase likely being asked to carry the offense. On the ground, Joe Mixon should be busy against an inefficient Cardinals run defense that was just shredded by Christian McCaffrey and also gave up big games to Saquon Barkley and Tony Pollard. While Mixon's inefficiency in the last couple years has been notable, he has actually appeared to benefit somewhat from the Bengals going entirely to shotgun formations. 
In the past, the Bengals were often extremely predictable with their formations, as they would run at a very high rate when Burrow was under center, while passing at a very high rate when they were in shotgun formation. This forced change in approach has resulted in Cincinnati no longer tipping their hand like they used to, and Mixon was one of the only bright spots in Week 4, as he managed 67 rushing yards on 14 carries against a stout Titans run defense. He also had relatively efficient outings against the Ravens and Browns' tough fronts, as it would not be surprising for Mixon to have his best game of the year in this spot against a weaker opponent where the Bengals will likely lean on him more, assuming Higgins is out or limited. Mixon and Chase should be the clear focal points of the offense's usage, and their drives will likely be long drives that focus on moving the sticks rather than explosive quick strikes. Arizona's defense naturally works to prevent explosive plays, and the Bengals are unlikely to force the issue with Burrow struggling physically and their receiving core likely to be shorthanded. This does provide the best chance for offensive success that the Bengals have had so far this season. How Arizona Will Try to Win The Cardinals' offense has been incredibly impressive to start the year, ranking 5th and 6th in the league in rushing offense DVOA and passing offense DVOA, respectively. James Conner operates as their clear feature back, and they are doing a great job of leveraging the mobility of quarterback Josh Dobbs through designed runs, getting him outside the pocket to make throws, and using him on fakes to hold linebackers and open up running lanes for Conner. The Cardinals' receiving core has also been solid, with Marquise Brown operating as the top option and rookie Michael Wilson stepping up as he continues to be given more opportunities and an expanded route tree. Rondale Moore has had his moments this year as the third receiver who also occasionally gets some work out of the backfield. He was somewhat forgotten about in last week's loss to the dominant 49ers, but he seems likely to be given a role this week in a winnable and less physical matchup. Cincinnati's defense is very beatable, and is coming off a disturbing performance where the Titans' previously dormant offense came to life. Arizona's offense actually profiles very similarly to Tennessee in many ways. They each have a conservative approach and rely heavily on a veteran pounder at running back. They also play methodically and focus on ball control while occasionally leveraging their quarterback's mobility. Finally, neither of them makes it a priority to force the ball to an alpha wide receiver, which can be a negative at times, but also makes them less predictable for an opposing defense. The Bengals struggled to stop the Titans last week as they allowed them to score on four of their five first-half drives. Given how similar the Cardinals are to the Titans, while actually being more efficient and dynamic so far this year, there is a good chance that the Cardinals are able to have another very good offensive performance in Week 5. Likeliest Game Flow This game's most likely outcome is a bit of a chess match, with both teams playing relatively conservatively and trying to position themselves to win it late in the game. Both defenses are very beatable, but the relative timidness of the offenses will likely keep this from turning into a track meet. Both teams should have offensive success moving the ball, but the flow of the game will depend on the red zone efficiency and whether they can turn those drives into touchdowns. Cincinnati's offense will likely be much more concentrated than Arizona's, while Arizona's offense seems more likely to make big plays thanks to the difference in quarterback mobility that each team is dealing with. On the surface, this game projects as a slow-paced matchup that should be conservative on both ends, with Arizona's offense focusing on ball control and Arizona's defense keeping everything in front of them while Cincinnati just tries to move the ball. Enjoying the game breakdowns? 
Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Eagles at the Rams. Kickoff Sunday, October 8th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 50. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Eagles' offense continues to hum this season as they have scored at least 25 points in all four games, ranked third in the NFL in both rushing, offense DVOA, and yards per carry, and have one of the most explosive and talented passing attacks in the league. The Rams have been very efficient offensively this season, and will get star-wide receiver Cooper Cup back in some capacity this week. Los Angeles will likely have little success running the ball this week, and will likely be forced into a high volume of pass attempts due to matchup and game script. Philadelphia has huge advantages at the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. We will likely see a very high volume of pass attempts in this game due to how both defenses funnel their opponents. How Philadelphia will try to win The Eagles' offense showed the most aggressiveness we'd seen all season in their overtime victory over the Commanders, as Jalen Hurts and A.J. Brown each had their best outings of the year. This offense projects to possibly eclipse last season's dominant offensive performance as the addition of DeAndre Swift has added a dimension of explosiveness and versatility to the backfield and should open up new areas of their playbook as the season progresses. A.J. Brown and Devonta Smith are a dynamic duo that generally dominates the receiving game, and their unique skill sets and versatility make them a nightmare for opposing defenses. Meanwhile, tight end Dallas Goddard has primarily been the forgotten man to start this season, but will undoubtedly have his moments as the season progresses, as defenses focus on the elite perimeter threats and trying to slow down the freight train dual-threat running game that Swift and Hurts provide. The Rams' defense hasn't been great this season. They had two relatively good performances against the Seahawks and Bengals, but in reflecting on those games, the offenses looked out of sync, with many of their struggles self-imposed. The 49ers had their way with the Rams, and the Colts had their issues early last week before turning on the offensive Jets as the game went on. The Colts' head coach is former Eagles offensive coordinator Shane Steichen. And he has been using a very similar approach with Anthony Richardson to the offense he used in Philadelphia with Jalen Hurts. It seems logical that the Eagles will study what the Colts did during their 23-point second half in Week 4 and should be able to implement many of the same concepts that the Rams' defense was susceptible against. Both the Colts and Eagles are nearly unstoppable when running plays with multiple options based on reading the defense and leveraging their quarterback's talents to keep defenses on their heels. The Eagles played at one of the fastest paces in the league last year, but started this season playing relatively slowly. They've picked it up a bit the last couple weeks, but I suspect they may be especially aggressive this week after their close call last week against the Commanders. The Rams' offense has been excellent this year, and their weakness is their offensive line, so the Eagles' approach will likely be to come out with guns blazing to try to take control of the game and let their defense tee off on Matthew Stafford. This does not necessarily mean the Eagles will throw an overwhelming amount, however, because their rushing offense is so dynamic and dominant that they can also break off big chunk plays in that way. The Rams' defense had not faced a dual-threat quarterback before last week, as they were able to hang tough with Geno Smith, Brock Purdy, and the ghost of Joe Burrow. 
Anthony Richardson and the Colts figured things out against the Rams last week, and although it was too little too late in that instance, it does pave the way for the Eagles to put up a big score, given the fact that they have a very similar scheme with upgraded talent across the board. How Los Angeles will try to win The Eagles' defense ranks 5th in the NFL in QB pressure rate, while the Rams' offensive line has struggled at times and gave up some big hits on Matthew Stafford last week. This matchup at the line of scrimmage will likely determine whether or not the Rams can stay competitive in this game. From a personnel standpoint, the Rams have leaned heavily on three young skilled players in Tutu Atwell, Puka Nakua, and Kyron Williams. This week, they appear set to get star wide receiver Cooper Cup back, who, along with tight end Tyler Higby, round out the Rams' primary skilled players. The offense had been very concentrated the first four weeks around Atwell, Nakua, and Williams, but there is now a considerable element of unknown with the addition of Cup. Over the past two years, perhaps no other wide receiver has been more integral to the team's offense than Cup's role with the Rams. Maybe the team will ease him back in and play him less than a full allotment of snaps in his 2023 debut, but even in that scenario, we should expect him on the field in all high-leverage situations. The Rams' head coach and general manager have commented in the last week about needing to somewhat limit the workload for running back Kyron Williams in the future after he completely dominated the backfield for several weeks. They should get their wish this week against the Eagles' top-ranked run defense, as the Rams already have the league's sixth highest pass rate over expectation and now have a matchup that dictates a greater reliance on the pass. Cup, Atwell, and Nakua are an interesting trio of wide receivers who can effectively work in many ways as extensions of the running game. The Rams and Sean McVay have to enter this game knowing they will need 24-plus points to have a chance, so they'll certainly look to attack the Eagles' relative weakness in their secondary from the outset. The Rams' offense will likely open the game with a heavy focus on quick, short passing and expand into other concepts down the field as the game wears on. The short passing attack will serve a dual purpose as it lets them avoid the stout Eagles' run defense while keeping Stafford upright and in one piece. Ultimately, the Rams should be able to move the ball on some drives, but turning those drives into touchdowns rather than field goals will be critical as the Eagles will likely be scoring in bunches. Likeliest Game Flow This game projects for a very high volume of pass attempts and overall plays as these offenses both play at a fast rate, and these defenses both tend to generate a high pass rate from their opponents. The Eagles are the league's top run defense and score a lot of points, which has led to their opponents throwing the ball at the second highest rate in the league through four games behind only the 49ers. Meanwhile, Los Angeles faces the second highest situation neutral pass rate in the league, behind only the Bills, as teams look to attack their relatively talent-deficient secondary rather than trying to run through Aaron Donald. It is hard to say the Eagles will take a pass-heavy approach, but they won't be simply pounding the ball like they did their first couple of weeks. The Eagles will likely continue what the Colts started last week and score often in this game. They will undoubtedly be able to move the ball, and their superior offensive talent and great scheme contribute to very high-end red zone efficiency. The Rams will have no choice but to throw the ball often, as their running game has not been very efficient and is highly unlikely to generate much against this tough Eagles front. The Eagles should jump out ahead early in the game, and this game will either be an ugly one where Philadelphia dominates the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball, or a potential shootout if the Eagles' secondary is once again vulnerable to a solid passing game and good scheme. The Jets at the Broncos. Kickoff Sunday, October 8th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 43.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson 
most of this game's outlook will depend on the offensive mindset that the Jets start with. New York has faced an extremely difficult schedule of defenses to start the year, but gets a reprieve against a historically bad defense. The Broncos' offense operates with a very broad distribution of touches, and has primarily been reactionary in its approaches to opponents so far this season. Denver is hoping to get some key defenders back this week, but the Broncos are unlikely to completely turn this thing around in one week. Common opponents between the Jets and Bears could potentially provide a glimmer of optimism for Zach Wilson and the Jets. How the Jets will try to win The Jets' offense finally showed some signs of life in their last five quarters dating back to the end of the Patriots game in Week 3. Zach Wilson had one of the best games of his career in a failed comeback attempt on national TV against Patrick Mahomes last week. This week, he gets to face a historically bad defense that just made Justin Fields and the Bears look like a high-octane offense. Playing the transitive property game with the NFL results can be dangerous, as teams, players, and schemes match up differently each week. However, there are some common threads we can tie together to try to wrap our heads around things here. The Bears played the Chiefs in Week 3, followed by the Broncos in Week 4. Chicago's offense was atrocious against the Chiefs, scoring only three points prior to a late garbage-time touchdown. They followed that up by scoring 28 points in the first three quarters against the Broncos. Then, you look at the Jets, whose offense looked solid against Kansas City and now travels to Denver to face that giving defense. There is certainly a lot of room for optimism here for the J-E-T-S. Head coach Robert Sala made waves this week by proclaiming there will no longer be any restrictions on running back Brees Hall's usage. This is especially notable due to the poor performance of Dalvin Cook to start the year and the elite matchup the Broncos provide. Denver's defense ranks bottom five in the league in most major categories against both the run and the pass, allowing teams to attack them in any way they see fit. Hall and the Jets' offense have not had a great start to the season, but it has to be noted that they have faced a murderer's row of defenses with the Bills, Cowboys, Patriots, and Chiefs. The Broncos' defense can act as a desert oasis for a team thirsting for some offensive success and looking to build on the promise of the Kansas City game. The passing game is also set up for success after a tough stretch to start the year. The four defenses the Jets have faced so far rank 1st, 3rd, 11th, and 16th in the NFL in QB pressure rate, while the Broncos rank dead last. Star cornerback Patrick Sertain II ranks 43rd out of 72 qualifying CBs in PFF coverage grade as he has fallen off a bit with the talent around him providing less support. It's also not as easy to cover someone when there is no pressure on the quarterback. Alan Lazard made some big plays last week, and Garrett Wilson was targeted 14 times on 39 Zach Wilson pass attempts, good for a 36% target share. Some other backs and receivers will be involved, as well as the Jets' tight ends, but Hall and Wilson will likely be the centerpieces of this offensive attack and have their most appealing matchups they've seen all year. If you are into narratives, this is also Hall's return to the scene of the crime where he tore his ACL last season. Usually, the Jets take a very conservative approach, but if they want to try to salvage their season, they need to build the confidence of Zach Wilson and give themselves a chance to have a competitive offense. While they may be able to play conservatively and win this game by relying on their elite defense, their long-term goals would be well served to approach this game with an aggressive mindset and prove to themselves and their opponents that they are capable of having a breakout offensive performance. If not now, then when?
How Denver will try to win. The Broncos' offense is more thermometer than thermostat. By that, I mean they have tended to operate primarily in the way that their opponent and game environment dictates, rather than dictating things themselves. They are bottom 10 in the NFL in pace of play, while also having a negative pass rate over expectation. Their running game hasn't really been able to get going for any big games through four weeks, and a stout Jets defense seems unlikely to be the spot where things open up on that front. New York's defense hasn't been quite as dominant this year as it has in the past, but they have certainly been formidable and are coming off a game where they held Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs to just six points in the last three quarters on Sunday night. The Broncos did get out to an early lead against the Commanders in Week 2, but have otherwise struggled offensively in the first halves of their games so far this season. Denver's offense is anything but concentrated. Javante Williams and Sam J. P. Ryan lead the backfield, but rookie Jaleel McLaughlin stepped in last week and played very well, which should make this an even messier committee for the time being. All three backs can do some decent things, but none are game changers. Against a solid Jets defense and scheme, we should expect them not to be completely shut down, but certainly not to have a dominant performance on the ground. The Broncos also had a whopping 11 different players receive a target last week, while no player caught more than three passes. There is some talent there with Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy, and Marvin Mims all possessing the ability to make plays at different areas of the field, but the Broncos appear to be in hope and pray mode as they'd rather spread things out and hope their defense gets their act together rather than accepting the current situation and trying to proactively outscore teams. They were lucky that the Bears took their foot off the gas last week and escaped with a win. My suspicions are that Sean Payton has not learned his lesson, however, and the Broncos will once again enter the game with a timid mindset because of positive reinforcement of getting away with it in last week's win, and the stigma around Zach Wilson and the Jets' offense as ultra-conservative and low-scoring. Likeliest Game Flow The Broncos appear to be a potential catalyst for high-scoring games this year, and that trend is something we may be wise to get out in front of. After a sluggish week one against the Raiders, Denver has been a part of games that ended with 68, 90, and 59 combined points, respectively. The Broncos' defense has been dealing with injuries, and some of those players may be coming back this week or in the coming weeks. But those players are not exceptionally high-impact players and will likely take some time to work back into shape and playing at their normal level. That is to say that even if they get a couple more able bodies this week, they are still a very vulnerable unit. As noted earlier, this Jets team needs to get their offense rolling, and this is a critical week for them to try to get back on track. The approach of the Jets' offense and their success will likely be what drives this game's scoring and overall flow, as the Broncos' offense is likely to struggle in this matchup, and if New York settles for duking it out with a conservative approach, then Denver will be unlikely to force the issue. Given the general direction the Jets have been trending, it does appear likely that they will force this game to be a bit more open than we've seen in the first four weeks for New York, but it probably doesn't start to get to the level of the high-flying shootouts we've seen the Broncos involved in to start the year. The Chiefs at the Vikings kick off Sunday, October 8th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 52.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Hard to draw up a more exciting on-paper matchup than this one between the first and third ranked teams in the NFL in pass rate over expectation. Both teams enter this game off close calls against lower-tier competition in Week 5. 
Kansas City is still in control of its division, while Minnesota is trying to avoid being left in the dust. Minnesota's defense has had an up-and-down season, but it has struggled against teams with higher-end quarterbacks, which Patrick Mahomes probably qualifies as. Kansas City's defense has only surrendered 52 points through four games, 13 points per game, and has yet to allow an opposing offense to score 20 points in a game. Explosive players on both sides of this game possess the ability to take the lid off this one at any point. How Kansas City Will Try to Win Despite leading the NFL in PROE again this season, the Chiefs' offense seems to be evolving somewhat particularly in its usage of their skill players. First of all, they had five different wide receivers play at least 24% of the snaps in Sunday night's win over the Jets, with none of them playing over 61% of the snaps. Meanwhile, tight ends Travis Kelsey and Noah Gray combined for a 40% target share. Finally, the Chiefs had 65 opportunities, carries plus targets, available in that game, and their running backs accounted for 31 of them, roughly half. Looking back at their previous game against the Bears, you can see a similar usage pattern, with running backs accounting for 17 of the team's 34, 50%, opportunities prior to taking a 21-point lead. These numbers are particularly interesting when you look at their Week 2 game against the Jaguars. In that game, the running backs accounted for only 5 of the 27, 18.5%, opportunities in the first half and only 11 of 29, 39%, in the second half prior to their final game-killing drive when they were trying to run out the clock. The reason I bring up all of those statistics is because when you put them together, you can see where the confidence of Andy Reid and the coaching staff lies. By affording so many different receivers significant snaps, but not allowing any to have a full-time role, you can tell they view them very interchangeably. Taking that a step further, the wide receivers have a very low cumulative share of the team's usage, which shows that their interchangeable group is not one that they think is playing at a very high level. You can also see how after a rough start to the season offensively, the Chiefs made it a priority to get their backfield more involved as evidenced by the increase in the running back's usage numbers. Kelsey is obviously the centerpiece of this offense, but Isaiah Pacheco's role has grown into the clear second option as a skill player behind Kelsey, and the team is using its backs enough that Jarek McKinnon and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire are also involved on some level every week. Those are all interesting tidbits to consider for this week when the Chiefs face a Vikings defense surrendering the most wide receiver fantasy points per game in the NFL through the season's first four weeks. On the surface, that statistic may make you think the Chiefs will attack their opponent's perceived weakness and make it a priority to get their wide receivers more involved. Digging deeper, however, you can see that the Vikings have played three games against teams with elite wide receiver duos in the Bucks, Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, Eagles, A.J. Brown and Devonta Smith, and Chargers, Keenan Allen and Mike Williams. Considering the lack of trust they have been showing in their wide receivers and the huge talent gap between theirs and the units that have diced up the Vikings, it is easy to see how this matchup could be more difficult for their offense than it appears on the surface. Their opponent's path of least resistance lines up with the personnel in their offense that is the least efficient and least preferred at the moment. There are some very positive data points for the Chiefs as well, however. The Vikings lead the NFL in blitz rate by a wide margin, yet are near the bottom of the league in QB pressure rate. Patrick Mahomes has many strengths, but avoiding sacks is one of the things he is truly different from everyone else in. 
Due to the combination of Mahomes' ability to avoid sacks and the horrible efficiency of the Vikings in creating pressure, the Chiefs should be able to avoid making negative plays and have opportunities for some explosive ones. A team that sends pressure but can't get home is especially vulnerable against an elite quarterback like Mahomes. Keep in mind that the Vikings' defense held the Bucks and Panthers, i.e. Baker Mayfield and Bryce Young, to 16.5 points per game while surrendering 31 points per game to the Eagles and Chargers, i.e. Jalen Hurts and Justin Herbert. There are very clearly some red flags about how the Chiefs could struggle this week. Yet there are also some very clear, exciting data points that point to a smash spot. I don't have the data myself, but I would venture to guess if over the last five years you blindly bet on the Chiefs scoring a lot of points against teams who blitz a lot but don't get sacks, you would have done very well. The receivers for the Chiefs have struggled this season, and it will be hard to pick out which one, if any, will have a solid game. But it stands to reason that the Vikings will likely be undermanned in the secondary often, and Mahomes' escapability will give his mediocre receivers the time and space needed to break open. Putting it all together, it seems likely that the Chiefs continue their recent usage patterns, but that their wide receiver core combines for a much more productive and efficient game than what it's shown to date. How Minnesota will try to win The Vikings escaped from Week 4 with their first victory of the season by the hair on their chinny-chin-chin, thanks in large part to their defense making some plays against a struggling offense. The Vikings' offense is clearly most effective throwing the football. But they fell into a weird game environment against the Panthers, and Kirk Cousins only ended the game with 19 pass attempts after averaging 46 passes in his first three games. To that end, the Vikings rank third in the NFL in PROE and lead the league in cumulative pass rate at 70.4%. Minnesota's offensive line does have PFF's second highest grade for run blocking but that number is likely skewed by facing the Chargers and Panthers' putrid run defenses over the last two weeks. The Vikings were unable to run the ball at all the first two weeks of the season. Enter this matchup against a Chiefs team whose defense has been extremely good to start the year, albeit against questionable competition. The Vikings, like all teams, should enter this game with two conflicting ideas of their best approach. Should they try to slow things down and keep Mahomes off the field? Or should they be extremely aggressive, knowing they're going to need to score some points to have a chance against him? Ultimately, the answer to that question will likely depend on the level of trust they have in their defense. Considering what we've seen from the Vikings' defense against good QBs so far this season, the team should definitely be expecting to need to score a lot of points to have a chance to win this game. The game from last season that stands out to me for the Vikings was their home game against the Cowboys. The whole week, it was expected that those two high-powered offenses would have a shootout. However, when the game played out, Dallas put it points up, but then the Vikings' offense fell apart as the Cowboys' defense pinned its ears back to terrorize them. The start to this game will be critical for the Vikings, as they need to keep the game script from getting away from them and having Chris Jones and the Kansas City defense cause mayhem. It will be no surprise to anyone that the Vikings are going to pass a lot. But ultimately, their key to success will be not playing the game in a situation where the Chiefs know they have to pass. Likeliest Game Flow Ironically, the key to this game's likely game flow can be found in the Netflix quarterback documentary from the 2022 season, when Mahomes talks about the need to aggressively pursue points against opponents with great quarterbacks because no lead is safe. 
While Cousins probably doesn't fall into the great category, he is very good at putting points on the board and has shown he can be very dangerous if he gets in a rhythm and when the Vikings are able to put their foot on the gas. This is true in large part because of the explosive skill players Cousins is surrounded with. Because of that explosiveness, Mahomes and the Chiefs are almost certain to enter this game with a mindset of needing to score points from the outset which increases their chances of an aggressive game plan aimed at taking advantage of the Vikings' fruitless blitz tendencies. The Chiefs' offense seems likely to be successful in its aggressive attempts early in the game, and the Vikings' offense is unlikely to generate a reliable running game against a more formidable opponent, thus leading to a likelihood that Minnesota must continue its pass-heavy approach this week. There is a bit of a stigma attached to primetime Kirk, as Cousins has had some very visible bad performances in big games over the years. However, the reality is that many times Cousins is put into situations that are difficult for a player of his skill set to thrive in. Specifically, those situations are usually when facing an opponent that can jump out to an early lead and make his offense especially predictable. To an even greater extent, the games where things get really bad tend to be in those predictable game scripts when the opponent is able to get pressure without blitzing and or from the interior. The reason for this is Cousins is a prototypical pocket passer with limited mobility. When teams are able to collapse the pocket from the interior, he doesn't make them pay the same way some other more athletic QBs are able to. Likewise, when the Vikings are predictable, their opponent can drop more defenders into coverage and play with lighter personnel that makes finding open receivers more difficult. Cousins has historically been very good against the Blitz, and when his opponents get ahead, they are afforded the luxury of not having to Blitz. This is because even if their pass rush doesn't get home quickly, they don't have to worry about Cousins making big plays with his legs. The Vikings would actually be best served to start from an ultra-aggressive mindset, because that would allow them to perhaps build a lead and make the Chiefs more predictable while keeping Cousins from the sitting duck role that he struggles with. If they let the game environment dictate their aggressiveness, it sets them up to be effectively giving up the high ground and will be a recipe for disaster. With all that considered, the most likely game script is the Chiefs jumping out to a lead and the Vikings struggling offensively. They may end up scoring some points later to keep the score somewhat close. But this sets up as a classic Vikings meltdown game where their offense gets backed into a corner it can't claw its way out of. We know very clearly the situations that each of these quarterbacks thrives in, and the Vikings are very clearly going to be the X-factor in how this game plays out. It is unlikely the Chiefs' offense fails here, and Kansas City should definitely score 20-plus points in any game script, while having the upside for 40-plus. Meanwhile, the Vikings could score three points or 38, and neither outcome should surprise us.